0: Hello and welcome to The Menu, Monaco Radio's food and drink program. I'm your host, Chiara Rimella. Today, we sit down with acclaimed chef Daniel Hum to talk about his food and art book, Eat More Plants, and his ideas on how to change the food system.
1: Food is so central to life and it touches people in different ways and it can also be transcending and it can create these Memories that we never forget.
0: Also, in the program, we discover a new Vietnamese opening in Singapore.
2: I think Southeast Asian flavor cuisine is on the rise. And Singapore, I think, actually is one of the best place to explore this because the way the customer perceives food here is more sophisticated than most.
0: Plus, we hit the slopes of Samaritz to discover the Engadine Valley's culinary offerings. All that, here on the menu, on Monocle Radio. (music) Chef Daniel Hum and the restaurant he leads, 11 Madison Park, in New York, would be remarkable even just by virtue of the accolades that they've received over the years, including being awarded the title of World's Best Restaurant in 2017. But the Swiss-born chef has a perspective and a mission that goes way beyond winning titles. A passionate advocate of eating plant-based food, he turned the menu at his restaurant fully vegetarian in 2021. But it's not just that. The pandemic also made him rethink many aspects of the restaurant industry and how fair and accessible it is. That's why at that time he turned 11 Madison Park into a community kitchen for frontline workers and food insecure New Yorkers. All the while, he kept journaling and making sketches about food, ingredients and vegetables. These intimate insights into his emotional approach to creating a menu have now been compiled into a remarkable, unusual and very abstract food and art book called Eat More Plants, released with publishing icon Gerhard Steidel. I spoke to Chef Hum about his idea that food needs to point to a better future and started by asking him what led him to this book project.
1: This is a very special project. And in fact, it was never really meant to be a book because it's really pages of my journal during the pandemic. And when Gerhard, who came to the restaurant with one of my closest friends in the world, who is Ronnie Horn, who is this amazing artist who has worked with Gerhard on many projects, on many books. And of course, also Gerhard has worked with many, many great artists out there. And Ronnie has always spoken so highly about Gerhard and the way he works and his quality and his standards and his perfectionism and all of it. And so they came together to have a dinner at the restaurant and it was so nice. And afterwards, we had a really beautiful conversation with Gerhard and he was really taken by the meal and it being all Vegetables, and he was very curious how it all came to be. And I told him that during the pandemic, I was journaling and journaling and drawing and writing. And that's where really the idea came to life. And so I told him about it, and he said, Oh my God, I would love to see these journals. And I was like, Well, they're not really meant to be seen because they're very personal. But he showed up the next morning to my office right here and he said, Where are they? Can I see them? And we went through them and he was excited to see them. And he said, Hey, I really would love to do a book together on these drawings and writings. And it took a little while for me to get comfortable with that because he does art books. I don't consider these artworks. It's just my personal practice. But then as as I was working with him in Germany for a few weeks, It was just an incredible process and it made me confident that it is in the right hands and this indeed should be shown in the world and I'm very proud of it and it's a very intimate look into the creative process.
0: I think it's very interesting because it is a book about food but it is an art book. Obviously the industry of books about food and cookbooks is huge and it's an editorial powerhouse but this is a very very different kettle of fish and i wonder how many people might see it and imagine that there will be amazing recipes inside and find themselves surprised that it's a much more abstract look at what it is that makes the magic of the restaurant why make an art book about food how do the two disciplines come together in your head art and food
1: well, for me, they've always been connected. I had a very powerful experience when I was 10 years old, and my parents brought me to the L'Orangerie in Paris to see the Monet water lilies. And I just went through these two rooms, being fully surrounded by these large scale paintings, and I started to cry. And I didn't know. If these were happy tears or sad tears, I was just so overwhelmed emotionally. And from that moment on, I knew that art really spoke to me. So in a way, I've navigated my life almost more through the lens of art than through the lens of food. And I think even the way I create is very emotional, not so much intellectual, I guess. And I've always drawn and I've always journaled. And so to me, they're always been completely linked together. And a lot of my friends are amazing artists. And I feel like we share the same language and the same struggles. And, you know, a lot of artists, even when they get very accomplished, they still feel very nervous to embark. On a new body of work, and what is the world going to think? And is this going to be good enough? And I think I have pushed myself and the restaurant always to new places in the 25 year history of the restaurant. And, you know, no matter how accomplished you become, that feeling of, oh, this might not be good enough, or what are people going to think? in a way has never left me it's there as much as it was there when i was 20 years old and i think artists shared th- there is a fragility in the creative process
0: i'm really fascinated by this way that you talk about ingredients as if they were people you know they're your friends and in, in a way you talk about how the seasonality of food is also the seasonality of life how do you draw these parallels between an almost psychological approach to food where food has this parallel with people and with psychology. Where does it sit, do you think, in our relationship with ourselves, with others and with our life?
1: I mean, food is so central to life. In fact, we cannot live without it. And it touches everyone and it touches people in different ways. And it's nurturing, it's what we need, but then it can also be transcending and it can create these memories that we never forget and that's such a beautiful beautiful thing i think also early in my career there was a lot that had to be satisfying our egos the truth is though that in 2017 our restaurant became the best restaurant in the world and that on its own is kind of a weird title but that was sort of the pinnacle of the awards world. At that point, there was not a single award that we didn't have for years. And when that happened, it was really disorienting because now what are we talking to the team about? Where are we going next? And you know, at that time, I was not even 40 years old and I had a lot of career left. And so there was a time of trying to figure out What is the purpose of this all? What are we actually contributing beyond just cooking for the 1%, you know, who can afford it? And after that, I I co-founded an organization to cook food for food insecure New Yorkers. And that was sort of like a step in the right direction, but it was still struggle to make sense of the restaurant and where to go next. And then of course the pandemic hit, And then that was devastating because we lost most of our team in that moment. We went from being super, super busy to having no business at all. Financially, it was very challenging. We didn't know how to pay the bills with no income, how to pay rent. So we're even to the point of facing bankruptcy. But at the same time, I was super tapped into the food insecurity in New York. And in New York, there's eight million people who live here. Before the pandemic, there's a million people that are food insecure. That number doubled to two million within the first two weeks. So now there's 25 percent of New York City's food insecure. But we decided to turn 11 Madison Park into a community kitchen and starting cooking meals. And we started with 300 meals a day, and then 500, a thousand. At the height of the pandemic, we cooked 8,000 meals every day, each day in little cardboard boxes in the kitchen of 11 Madison Park. We did this work for two years straight out of the kitchen and it changed my life, even though I did not know how to pay the bills. I didn't know if there's going to be an 11 Madison Park in the future. I lost my team. Even though all of a sudden I started feeling really happy when I was waking up in the morning. I felt like there is a purpose. I felt like for the first time in my life, the work of cooking actually really matters. It actually is really making a difference in people's lives. And it became clear to me that the world is telling me something. It became clear to me that I have a responsibility to use the language of food to create change and so i think creatively i feel like pushing towards plant-based eating is the only way that progress is going to be made but i do believe in creating beauty i do believe the world needs it too like a beautiful ballet or beautiful performance or beautiful art and you know cooking on a high level with the best ingredients, with the best team, on beautiful porcelain, in a beautiful space. I do also think that there is an importance in that. And in our case, that very thing has given us the platform and sort of the voice to make a change. Um, but after reaching all these awards, it became clear during the pandemic that we actually now have a responsibility.
0: This shift to plant-based is obviously... The backbone of this book. It's called Eat More Plants, and it is the big radical difference that you've made to the restaurant in the last few years. But I am very curious to know in the book, you mentioned that cooking with plants is the most natural way of cooking. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, it is spiritual to create these meals with just plants and there is no life being taken. I mean, you can't. Ignore that. And after now three years of creating these luxurious meals, and there's no life being taken, and we create these memories, there is something really beautiful about it. But I also mean it in a way that when we cook seasonally, now if everything is a vegetable on the plate, then everything is from that season, from the earth. And when you're eating that, you're really feeling the season in a way. I don't believe before you really did, because I think before we almost just cooked seasonal condiments to fish and meat. And today the entire dish is off the season and it is so natural. And it's also so abundant. I felt like maybe we would be limited by leaving these things behind. But in fact, it's the opposite because what a main course could be in this new version of our restaurant It could literally be every ingredient that's in this book on every page could be imagined as a main course. While before we only had like five options between the five meats and now it feels free. It feels really in touch with the seasons, with the planet, with the earth. And yeah, it's been really moving and and beautiful.
0: That was Chef Daniel Ham. You're listening to The Menu. Vietnam is famous for its street food. Summer rolls with peanut sauce, steaming bowls of pho and crunchy banh mi sandwiches are all beloved examples of super fresh Vietnamese flavours. The cuisine is plentiful in nearby Singapore too, but Vietnamese chef Quinn Brown is offering something very different to the city's other casual Vietnamese eating spots. The menu at her new venture Lo Quay, brings the traditional flavours of her home country into a fine dining setting with plenty of creative flair. Monocle's Lillian Fawcett went along to find out how Chef Quinn's upbringing in rural Vietnam shaped her cooking and for a peek inside Lo Kuei's lively kitchen.
2: Growing up in the middle of Saigon in mid-80s, I was very lucky to have my grandfather who truly a farmer at heart and he had created his own ecosystem and farm in the middle of the city on a rooftop, and he had taught me so many farming skills and self-sustainability, and then on top of that, every year he would take me summer break to go to where he was born, which is a small isle in very deep south of Vietnam. And in that area, at the time, we didn't have any electricity or running water, so we literally have to catch forage, storing rainwater, and do irrigations and everything on our own. And um, that was what shaping me to grow the appreciation for food and just the labor that go in it—that to grow, to nurture, and then to make sure that everyone had the delicious meal and nutritious on the table.
3: Like you say, you learned your love of food and cooking as a child, but you didn't straight away want to be a chef, did you? You thought you wanted to be a doctor. How did you go from thinking you wanted to be a doctor and then when did the
2: realization come that actually you wanted to cook for a living? Small funny background story on that. At the age of 13, I strangely discovered that I was quite gifted with the knife through a biology glass and <laughs> we were dissecting frogs and I just happened to excel at it quite well <laughs> and I just grew to love it so much that I wanted to pursue the career of doctor but you know sometimes life have different paths for us and so the closest thing for me to be cutting things up and make life beautiful is to cook and cut things to cook with it.
3: (laughs) And both obviously require those knife skills that you were just seemingly innately born with. Let's talk about Vietnamese cooking then. How would you describe it? What's kind of the essence of Vietnamese cuisine and what do you love about it?
2: So for me, growing up in Vietnam at the time as well, we didn't have much access to a lot of ingredients and such. So even the salt, the sugar we get from the province so back then if my grandfather's relative, they come sometimes they bring salt from their area, they, which they harvest themselves, or even they make their own fish sauce or they make their own fermented fish, shrimp paste or something but back then sugar was their gift, so anytime we get sick the gift that people give to you is a bag of sugar so therefore, I want to stay true to what flavor that I grew up with, which is the sweet is a, it's not overly sweet with all the glucose and extra additive. The salty is never punched you in the face salty. It's just enough for you to enhance the flavor. Quinn
3: we're in the kitchen now at Lo Kue. thank you so much for having me and you're going to cook something for us what are you going to make
2: so today we're going to make the southern style pho uh, which is something that I've always hold very dear um, I tried to recreate the dish that I have with my mother when I was five on the sidewalk so and a um, little bit different and less conventional lovely okay where do we start then what's the first step usually I start with about 20 to 30 kilos of uh, bone marrow and we cook that down with uh, ombrosums and tripes and a little bit of the beef shank. So we blanch and then we cook that for about 18 hours. We skim up all the bone marrow fat and we serve it for something else super delicious as well. And then after that, after the 18 hour process, we um, incorporate with the herbs and then cook that for another 10 hours. To reduce is to be about one-third of what original stock was and then the omasum and the tribes we defried it the tendons that we add from the beginning as well we take that out and dehydrate and make tendon chips and we have also incorporate Wagyu brisket with Vietnamese herbs so um, let's start cooking this is the tripes and this is the omasum, so it's part of the cow's stomach. We fried this to be part of the garnish. One or two minutes for it to get crispy, and you don't want to overdo it too much because you want to retain a little bit of chewiness from the thicker part. But the, the small part of the omasum, we want it to look like an open book quite a visual uh, effect to that.
3: Then, yep, you don't want to stand too close to the hob either, do you, <laughs> when the, the oil's spitting everywhere? No,
2: if there's no fun in the food, if there's not, not a little bit of element of danger, right? And so on top of that, to um, top off, we have the tendon chips. And it's, it go something like this. Take about... Also 24 hours to dry up and then you can hear the yummy goodness popping up. So what we do with this is we put in a cup all together and it looks like this. We push the eggs. Now we add all the the elements together with the tendons and the end product would go something like this. As we pour the broth, you will uh, get the effect of the air escaping from the chips. So the all the crunchy elements, the omasam, the, awesome, the drive, it will stay the same. as a nice, crunchy, a little bit chewy part. But the tendons, you will still get the crispy. And all the goodness of the sauce and the, the broth, it will soak into the tendon. So recommendation, the way that we used to eat it was you scoop the eggs and you slip the eggs as a whole, and then you drink the whole thing as tea. Or if you a little bit more of an adventurous eater, you can break the eggs into the broth and then drink the whole thing together. And it's it's quite, I guess, small compared to, to what you would usually expect from a pho.
3: Are people surprised, do you think, when they order a pho and they get something that maybe doesn't look like what they're
2: expecting? Actually, most of the time people have the shock on their face because on top of this the, the pho that I serve do not have noodle because uh, most common understanding of the Vietnamese pho is a giant bowl of noodles with um, beef, or chicken but the beauty of the pho is actually the broth. It should be only about the broth. Everything else is just an add-on so that's why I try to emphasize this so the flavor of the pho instead of use fancy cooking technique or fancy ingredient I dial it back to the original, um, hence the small little cup.
3: (laughs) Good things come come in small packages. Exactly, you got that, right. And just finally, obviously we're in Singapore. You chose to open your restaurant in Singapore we're kind of gradually coming out of the pandemic, our dining habits are returning to normal. What's your sense of the kind of Singapore food scene at the moment? Are you seeing any particular trends in the kinds of restaurants that are opening up or the cuisines that are really popular?
2: I think Southeast Asian flavour cuisines in general is on the rise. And Singapore, I think, actually is one of the best place to explore this because the sense of food and the hospitality and the way the customer perceive food here is more sophisticated than most. As I travel the world, I feed many countries, feed many peoples. I find that the palate of Singaporeans are much more refined. So yeah, I think this is the, the right choice. And not just for myself, but a lot of upcoming restaurants, a lot of young chefs, uh, and I see they're quite successful as well.
0: Thanks, Lillian. This is The Menu on Monocle Radio. Now it's time for the week's top food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Monica Lillis.
4: The first lab-grown freshwater eel meat has been produced, potentially solving the dilemma of the overfishing of the species. The cultivated meat was manufactured by Israeli firm 4 Seafoods. Foods. They have also collaborated with plant-based pioneer and Japanese chef Katsumi Kusumoto to create the exclusive plant-based eel sushi. The aim of the company is to make the artificial fish so abundant that it matches the price of the real thing. A new study by an American chemist has revealed to have found the perfect recipe for a cup of tea. The secret, according to the chemistry professor Michelle Franci, is a pinch of salt as well as using short stout mugs to keep the tea hot. However, the unconventional saline advice has caused a stir in Britain, with much of the UK's media reacting with fury and bewilderment. And finally, India's courts will soon rule on who invented butter chicken, one of the nation's most beloved dishes worldwide. The origins of the dish has long been in contention as two Delhi restaurants both claim to have the right to call themselves the home of the first recipe. The case was first heard by the Delhi High Court last week and a further hearing is set to take place in the spring. Those are the week's food and drink headlines.
0: Now back to Kiara. Thanks, Monica. You're listening to The Menu. And finally, today on The Menu, we head to the Swiss Alps to survey the hospitality scene in the popular ski resort of San Moritz. Visitors to this hallowed ski destination know they can count on a wide range of delicious places to enjoy a meal. From the exquisite fine dining restaurants in San Moritz's celebrated five-star hotels to the more rustic and laid-back fondue joints, food and drink lovers are spoiled for choice in this chic alpine enclave. Monaco's Milan correspondent Ivan Carvalho headed to the Engadine to report on how San Moritz tempts discerning palates during the busy winter season.
5: The slogan for the alpine resort of San Moritz is "Top of the World." Situated in Switzerland's Engadine Valley, at 1,800 meters above sea level, the catchphrase is apt, since it applies not only to the superior skiing and shopping found here, but also to the high-end food and beverage service at local five-star hotels. First among them is Badruts Palace, the crown jewel among Swiss hotels, which pampers guests with an arsenal of culinary delights at nearly a dozen food and drink venues. This winter, Badruts is up the stakes by hosting two-star Michelin chef Erik Wildgard of Danish restaurant Jördner for a two-month residency. I caught up with Wildgard on opening night to hear about the seafood first menu and his love of caviar.
6: You know, to to do what we do, we have to have a very strong logistic towards the seafood from, from Norway. So, I mean, we work together with the best suppliers of Nordic king crab. So he secured us the langoustines, the scallops and the king crab. And the king crab is a good example because all the guests here have had king crab before, but they never had king crab of this quality before, for sure. And I do like to use the whole animal. So when we have like a king crab, we we break it apart, take the legs, we poach that and serve it as some signature dishes. Then all the trimmings, like in between the joints, the collar and the tail of it, we cook it separately, take it apart, and then we serve it as one of the first bites. It's so pure on the meat, like it's so so seafood-y, but pure. So we serve it as the first bite with a small tartelette. So the usage of the whole animal. Also goes for the langoustine. So so we have the langoustine heads here, flambéed with delmein cognac, reduced down with Polynesian vanilla, and then the pulp from the marindra tomato where we separate the water from the tomato, which we then put on top of this langoustine jelly with aromatic herbs and olive oil from Cordova. So I do like the whole process of building flavors, but also respecting the product we work with. And in the menu with the caviar here at the Battle Palace as well as home, we have four caviars right now. We have like um, two snacks with caviar. We have caviar as an ingredient for the warm turbot and then we have a singular serving of beluga cerubica caviar with a white miso cream and a blackcurrant wood oil. And I made this dish because I wanted to to have that feel of like enjoyment when i made the dish the first thing the acidity called for was a little bit more acidity but for me if you add acidity to the dish you break the layers of flavor so i wanted to build on top of the acidity naturally so i took blackcurrant wood oil which has like a tart green tone to it without any acidity it's just very woody in some way and it works very well with the a little bit of earthiness that caviar has like this green seaweedy tone you know like it, it works very well with that. And it also reminds me of a joyful moment picking uh, berries in my garden, you know. So you have this summer feeling, even though we're in the middle of this winter in the Alps, but that green tartness that you get from picking berries, you know, that smell on your hands, together with a very creamy, umami-rich white miso sauce, which uh, emphasizes the umami from the eggs.
5: While Eric Wildegaard works upstairs, downstairs in Madrid's main kitchen, Teams of resident chefs prepare meals around the clock, including sweet temptations dreamed up by executive pastry chef Stefan Gerber, whose latest passion is all things mango related. To setting further down into the cellar, I meet Christina Iculano, head sommelier at Badroots, to talk about Swiss wine from vineyards in the local canton. So I wanted to ask you. Um since Grand Boudin, the canton here, has mm-hmm. the Chardonnay grapes and the Pinot grapes, Yes. The, the climate here, because obviously we're not talking about a Burgundy climate because Grand Boudin, where the grapes are growing, it's not St. Moritz, but it's still colder. Yes. So, so what kind of uh, differences do you see when you're opening up the bottles here of these, of these Swiss wines?
0: In terms of uh, aromatics part, can we say, there are uh, totally different nose smells from uh, other Pinot Noir.
5: And tell me about now the Chardonnay from here. What what is it that you like about the Chardonnay here and how does it contrast with, say, classic French Chardonnay?
0: What I truly say, I love in the Swiss, more the white wine than the red wine. The red wine is really good. You're going to have really such a beautiful wine, which you can pair it with more meal, But the white wine is the more complex than the red wine. Like the Burgundy, can we say, really, with aromatic and more expressive, already on the nose.
5: Even on the ski slopes, visitors are pampered with fine dining. One popular mountain restaurant is Langosteria, part of the Milan-based hospitality group started by Enrico Borocore. Patrons ski on the slopes of Corviglia, then take a break to enjoy panoramic views of the Alps while tasting first-choice seafood. Gianluca Pena is manager at Langosteria San Moritz.
7: So right now at the moment uh, we are uh, frying um, our signature uh, frittura langosteria it's uh, been one of the dishes uh, in our menu since the beginning of L'Inguisteria Milan. Uh, basically, it's made with scampi, uh, gamber rosso, shrimp from Mazzara, calamari caccio Lightly fried with uh, very light pastella and uh, 100% in uh, peanuts oil. Very light, uh, crispy, and we are serving on the side with uh, wasabi mayonnaise. And it's a perfect combination with really, really light spice. So St. Moritz is true, it's uh, 2000 meters above the sea level. Uh, we made sure that in our menu, our guests find exactly the same dishes that are available in Milan or in Paris. We make sure that uh, we get uh, Norwegian langoustine, oysters uh, from Brittany, or we had gambero rosso from Sicily, carabineros from Galicia, exactly the same dishes, like our uh, linguine with blue lobster, or our scampi and foie gras tartare, one of our signature. Here in Engadina, since uh, we want to homage the mountain, we create uh, a nice dish, which is polenta, with mixed seafood. And it's been a really big success, having something coming from the mountain, like polenta taragna, and mixed with uh, fresh seafood product.
5: Back in town, I head over to the newly opened Grace Hotel, where bar manager and resident mixologist Mirko Giumelli entices visitors for an apres-ski drink with his signature cocktails for the winter season.
8: We start to make our best-seller cocktail for the winter, which is mandarin pizza. So the mandarin pizza is just a green pizza with a mandarin touch for the winter season. We put 30 ml of vodka, 30ml of our mandarin liquor, which is Italian made. Fresh lemon juice. And a touch of sugar, just to balance all the ingredients. We shake gently. We strain into an eyeball glass with a chunk of ice. This is a very fresh drink. It's a super refreshing drink. And we finish, like every pizza, with a bit of soda water. Voila. The garnish is a simple dry mandarin. So, mandarin pizza, salute.
5: Thank you, Mirko. Despite its small footprint high up in the Alps, Saint Moritz still offers an impressive lineup of fine dining spots and casual restaurants to keep travelers entertained in between time spent enjoying all the freshly fallen snow. For Monocle in Saint Moritz, I'm Ivan Carvalho.
0: And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we will be back with a new episode again on Friday at 20:00 London time. That's at midday in San Francisco. Also, don't forget to tune into our spin-off show, Food Neighbourhoods, for a tour of some of the world's tastiest destinations. I am Chiara Rimella. This programme was produced by Monica Lillis, and our sound engineer was Mariella Bevan. Thanks for listening, and until next week.